on this channel, I've commented a good deal on race, and that's something that uh, is generally not appreciated by uh, white males of privilege and status. I do it not because uh, I think I have unique knowledge, but because I think there is some classical liberal knowledge that is being neglected in our current moment of the, uh, I, I've heard it called the oppression Olympics. Uh, it'd be also called grievance politics. Um, there's a, it's a, an outgrowth of modern like Marxism. Neo-Marxism is what it's usually called. The basics of that ideology are that there are historically oppressed and marginalized groups, and then there are historically privileged groups. And uh, there is a, a moral task before all of us, which is uh, redistributionism, pretty much. So a form affirmative action would be an understanding of this where you have a pr uh, historically privileged classes that need to be put down so that we can lift up historically oppressed uh, I said classes, but uh, affirmative action is races, isn't it? So that's what uh, the modern welfare state is about. We need to take from those who have to give to those who don't have. And of course, there is scriptural precedent for this to some degree. Otherwise, it never would have gained any traction in the church. However, um, there has been a great blurring of lines between church and state, such that a lot of people think that it's the state's job to engage in redistributive economic and racial policies. Um, but there's also tension within the church about how it is that we practice God's justice within the household of God. How do we help people of privilege like me to sit down and shut up and let other voices speak? Um, how, how is it that we helpfully create a future in which um, all, all persons are treated as equals in the household of God? So the reason I'm, I'm beginning with that is because very recently, uh, well, July 12th, so that would have been eight days ago, retired Bishop Forrest C. Stith put out a, uh, an article called Can These Bones Live? Thoughts on Methodism and Disaffiliation. This is him right here. Um, he, uh, well, he, he said a lot of things that are racially charged, and they fit within this neo-Marxist framework of critical race theory which um, I, I don't want to impugn the motives or intelligence of people who uphold critical race theory, people that I respect very much, like Odell Horn, um, believe in critical race theory. theory. That's their lens of, of approaching different issues. But what I am going to say is that um, among all the things that divide people, that race is not nearly as significant as class and culture. Those are the two things that I think get way overshadowed in the modern conversation. And I will say that that's something that Bishop Stith should be aware of. And the reason that I say that is because once upon a time, Stith was uh, bishop of uh, the New York City area. Uh, so I, I, I found this article. I just did a simple web search. It's from 1994. It was a New York Times article, December 11th, 1994. The, uh, the article's called Neighborhood Report, Southeastern Queens, Pastor's Removal, fuels tension among factions at a church. The bickering inside of the First United Methodist Church of Jamaica has reached such a peak in the last year that political leaflets are passed out on Sunday mornings. Accusations are made concerning during services and a committee established to reconcile the warring groups concluded, perhaps charitably, that it could not be of service. But the bishop's recent decision to remove the church's pastor in an effort to heal the rift seems only to have made matters worse, leading 
some Filipino members to charge racism and threaten to leave the church. A historically white church, First United Methodist began changing in the 1970s as black members became the majority. So keep in mind, it's a historically white church. Filipinos become the majority. You assume the racial tension is between white and Filipino. You'd be wrong. But in the last decade, more and more Filipinos joined and assumed leadership positions. By all accounts, it is the Filipinos' growing power that widened the gap with older members. The pastors since 1988, the Reverend Avelio de Leon, a Filipino, became the object of critical attacks from some older parishioners who said he was arrogant and favored the Filipino members. Last year, Mr. de Leon expressed unhappiness over continuing attacks and even hinted that he would leave, prompting a bitter struggle for the church. Last month, Bishop Forrest C. Stith of New York concluded the church could not heal under the ever-worsening conditions and decided that Mr. De Leon would be replaced in January. This is not unique, Bishop Stith said of the conflict. What's amazing is how few other churches have experienced a degree of contentiousness as this one, the inference being that race is something worth uh, dividing over or causing contention or division. He's saying it's really remarkable with all the racial tumult that there hasn't been more of this. Many churches in Queens have lost their traditional white members over the last two decades. Ronald Lawson, a sociologist at Queens College, said some had avoided conflicts by holding separate services for different members, but like this one, if the original congregation of whites becomes too small, the remaining groups will eventually gather in one service. That leads to conflicts. I, I find this whole paragraph here uh, worthy of uh, contention. So there are just a lot of assumptions in place that, that whites don't like sharing power or cultural influence, that they're ungracious in sharing. Um, I'm sure that's normal sometimes to say that that's representative of all white people is a problem. Quote, they believed the Filipinos would turn this into a Filipino church, said Kenneth Bauzon, an immigrant from the Philippines and a political science professor at St. Joseph College in Brooklyn. He said a small but vocal group made up mostly of black members had never accepted the Filipino pastor. Never mind what they just said before, this is what matters. <laughs> this is not a narrative of white people being ungracious or racist. This is a matter of changing demographics and two minority groups getting into it with each other. Judith Reed, one of the most outspoken opponents of Mr. De Leon, denied racism was the cause. I'm not sure what the conflict is about myself, she said. There's been a lot of misunderstanding. As a Filipino immigrant who joined the church 20 years ago, Peter Bersamin is a rarity. In fact, he opposed Mr. De Leon's appointment six years ago because he believed the Filipino pastor would not grasp the racial and ethnic complexities of the church. Blacks and Filipinos used to get along, he said, but things would never be the same. Quote, if the pastor leaves, he said, a core group of Filipinos will follow him. Others, including myself, will also leave this church because of all the animosities. So why did I lift this up? As I said, Bishop Stith should have a working knowledge of how race is actually not a two-dimensional um, construct, but is actually something that is very uh, complex and wrapped up in cultural norms and, um, uh, uh, what is it, culture and ethnicity. These things are the reality of what we often call race. Race is a construct. Ethnicity is not, genetically speaking, 
culture is not, um, anthropologically speaking. These are realities that we try to collapse into a framework of race, which is broad and inexact and insufficient for dealing with group dynamics. As that New York Times article clearly showed, yes, there were ethnic dynamics at play that are easily kind of explained by uh, uh, human tendencies for affinity groups, liking being connected to people who are like us, being drawn to people who resemble us culturally, ethnically, that is a human inclination, and then xenophobia, which is a fear of new, strange, different. Um, and these are natural things that, that take place and that the church should be able to navigate well, but you're always going to do violence whenever you come into a situation with a racial lens when you're supposed to be helping them get past uh, racialization. And so what's going to happen now is I'm going to read an article written by Bishop Stith, uh, retired Bishop Stith, where he continues to use a very unhelpful, inexact, I would say bigoted framework for understanding the current dynamics in the United Methodist Church. He does so in order to create an in-group, out-group mentality where people who wanted to disaffiliate and leave the United Methodist Church can be dismissed as um, uh, easy, easy racial stereotype. He's, he's going to include, he's going to accuse people like me of being racist while using a racialized lens, um, which I find tiresome and regrettable. But also, uh, if, if I don't do, if you're not listening to someone who's doing this kind of work of going through it, you might actually think that this passes for um, something of some quality, whereas it's really um, kind of embarrassingly not conscientious um, or helpful. All right, so let's, let's get into it. It begins with a scriptural quote from Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 3, and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. Homecoming. Amidst a season of cultural wars, remnants of COVID-19 and disaffiliations, it was a joy to share virtually with my home conference, the Baltimore-Washington Conference. We are so thankful for new technology that allows us to go home without leaving our house. It was a wonderful annual conference, superbly conducted by Bishop Latrell Easterling, who is not only an outstanding preacher, but a very capable presiding officer. The Bible study was extraordinary, led by my colleague, Bishop Peter Weaver, on the book of Acts, in which he recalled the story of the actions of the first apostles. His insights set the tone of an upbeat conference, which amidst much business, ordination, special recognitions, and difficult decisions, set aside much of one day to be saturated in mission in schools in the Baltimore area. If you haven't seen it, I actually published an article on their conference session in which there was a lady who got up on the floor and physically uh, threatened violence on another member, um, in which the, the, the bishop, hey, I've seen much worse uh, presiding by bishops, but she really struggled to uphold the theme of love. Um, and uh, yeah, I would not say that this annual conference was an exemplar of um, excellent conduct. Um, okay, let's go on. Alas, during these sessions on disaffiliations, I felt deeply wounded when I witnessed 23 churches disaffiliate. Oh, those hurtful people, how could they do that? 
Although it is a small percentage, less than 10%, a loss of any part of the body is still a loss. Hey, you should keep in mind, always remember, they're charging 50% of property value to disaffiliate, and they have several dozens more filing suit against the conference to leave because these provisions are not realistic. So yeah, he's simultaneously saying, saying they're so hurtful, and oh, there's hardly any of them. Don't, don't look at the actual numbers of people wanting to leave. Um, first, out of 26 years of ordained ministry in this conference and 20 years residing in the bounds of the conference during retirement, this is my home. Secondly, 12 of those active years were in positions of leadership in the conference where I often visited and ministered some of these churches from Baltimore to West Virginia and Washington, D.C. to Southern Maryland. Thirdly, this conference is the place where Methodism began in 1784 at Lovely Lane Chapel in Baltimore. For these reasons and more, I had great pain. Yet, I can only imagine what it must be like for conferences experiencing losses in the hundreds. St. Paul says it best in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, For as the body is one, it has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. And so we ask, can these bones live? So if I were to sum this up, I would say, we have people who want to leave us. Couldn't be because there's something wrong with us. It has to be there's something wrong with them, and after they've left... And, oh, it's so hurtful. Can we live? Can these bones live? Can we, like the ancient Israelites who were torn apart, be brought back to life by the redeeming hand of God? Now, the question, the answer there is obviously God can bring back to life anyone he wants to bring back to life. What's lacking here is the discernment to ascertain the United Methodist Church is generally not an organization that glorifies God at this point, at least not in a biblically recognizable sense. The social agenda of the United Methodist Church is at odds with clear scriptural witness in dozens of places, um, and they have aligned themselves against traditional Christianity in ways that are going to become more and more clear over the coming years, which is why people like me have left. It's because we see the writing on the wall, and we don't want our dollars and support and effort to be poured into an institution that is aligned against biblical understandings of who God is and who he calls us to be. Um, he, he alludes his connection uh, to the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference and its bishop. Bishop Latrell Easterling has also used racially charged language in order to divide churches in her annual conference and to give black congregations the distinct impression that the only people who want to leave are bigoted white Trump supporters. Um, even against the protestations of those people leaving themselves, I didn't talk about it during the, the presentation on Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference, but those pastors and churches departing tried to put forward an amendment where all of their payout would go to the benefit of historically black churches because they wish blessing upon them. Uh, Bishop Easterling said, no can do, we're not going to allow that. But they made very clear on their way out the door that they have no racial animus whatsoever and they desire to be in connection and, and mutual respect with black people. This is not a racial thing. What's happening is two black bishops, one retired and one in a session, are going to insist that the only reason people would want to leave the UMC is out of racial animus. When this bishop, uh, Bishop um, Stith, I'm going to remember that by the end of today, he, he knows very well that race is not nearly that simple. All right, factors affecting disaffiliation. While I do not know all the reasons for these disaffiliations, I am sure the stated objection is the fear that in 2024 there will be changes in the Book of Discipline at General Conference around human sexuality. One of my spiritual mentors said, they're not angry about what they say they're angry about. Their reason for leaving the denomination 
may well be based on other deeper issues. I suspect there are a multitude of such issues. Nine come to mind. Um, so to say they're not angry about what they say they're angry at is to imply either dishonesty or um, a lack of self-awareness. And granted, sure, a lot of conservatives have a lack of self-awareness. But to imagine that everybody is dishonest and they're not really saying they're real intentions, which I think is gonna, he is going to say is to protect white supremacy. Um, you, you just have to really harbor a de deep hatred for people to just not let them speak for themselves and continue to put words in their mouth. Here's a profile of those disaffiliating. While first, first while it is dangerous to generalize about those who have chosen to leave the denomination, and I do not possess the statistical skills to produce a scientific profile, there are some corollary, corollaries. <laughs> I think I said that right. One is the racial makeup of disaffiliating churches, which is predominantly white. Hey, you know what else is predominantly white? The United Methodist Church, 94% uh, majority white. Another is geography. When we look at a map of the United States, we see that the disaffiliations are strongest in what we used to call the Bible Belt, stretching across much of the South and up into Pennsylvania and west to Ohio, Indiana, etc. These represent the same area where biblical conservatism has been strongest. One can also assume that age would be, age would be another category since the latest Gallup, Pew, and Jones polls demonstrate that younger generations are more inclusive in attitude and relationships than older generations. So there's a number of assumptions made here, um, and then it's easy to just cut through and find what you want. So uh, an easy way to complicate this is just to look at what annual conferences have a relatively streamlined process for getting out versus which ones like his conference make it almost impossible to afford. Um, there, This is something I largely covered if you didn't see it. The uh, Lewis Center for Church Leadership put out a, a, a terribly sloppy and bigoted uh, statistical analysis of disaffiliating churches that tried to make the case that he's making here. It, it can only be made with uh, broad strokes and assumptions and uh, stereotypes. It's, it's not, it shouldn't be respected uh, by intelligent people. Second, the cultural societal, current societal cultural context in America is fiercely political and polarizing. Local churches are not immune, but rather are deeply affected by this polarization. So the, the lack of self-awareness in this statement is depressing. He's coming with a polarized, racialized lens at a situation that actually doesn't lend itself to the case that he's making. But he's saying because of the polarized political environment that has been imprinted on these churches and these, these, these white bigots are being impacted by the cultural moment. The basis of the current American so-called culture wars is a historical assumption that the only valid American way of life is a WASP, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and male foundation. That's, that's a heck of a statement right there. This assumption, which is deeply engraved in the psyche, excludes persons who represent the minority of the population in historicity, values, culture, and a variety of religious practices. That includes African Americans, ethnic minorities, immigrants outside of Nor Northwestern Europe, women, and especially the LGBTQ community. One of the strongest advocates for this position is the American National Christian Movement. So we have a, a bogeyman that he is going to 
point against the, the Christian nationalists who many of whom associate it not with just a sense of virtues and values, but also with ethnicity and cultural norms. Um, that's something that I distance myself from. I'm, I'm invested in a colorblind future where people of all ethnicities can join in a shared culture that's uh, animated and motivated by shared convictions in Christ and cultural values. That's what I'm engaged in. People with a racialized uh, lens want to maintain cultural and ethnic separation. I've, I've no doubt that this is something that Stith and Easterling and many of our bishops support. They don't want integration of black and white and Latino and Filipino churches. They want them all to stay separate, have exact same, well, separate but equal is, is what they want, which has been historically proven to be impossible. But, you know, uh, if it's broke, don't fix it, right? You, you know how to capitalize on racial tensions, don't you? So to say that, that uh, the basis of current American so-called cultural wars is a historical assumption that the only valid American way of life is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, that can be disproven in dozens of ways. It's laughable at this point. And the only reason anyone would agree to that is if they just want to justify an irrational hatred of uh, classical liberalism or conservatism. Um, for one, you know, Catholicism and Judaism maintained uh, uh, e equal status with Protestantism some time ago. White Anglo-Saxon, that's okay, Anglo-Saxon, he, he says that and then he expands it out to, to Eastern, Western European um, most people don't even see race, at the, if you especially want to talk about young people. And then um, male. He just throws that out there, no justification. Whenever we're looking at females taking over the academy, uh, outperforming males in a number of metrics, and uh, taking over entire sectors of the uh, workplace, this is, this is just um, leftist propaganda. Like, you, you have to be so sloppy and inexact in your thinking to, to receive this as anything resembling truth. But he's, he's, he's going to put it out there, not defend it, not um, uh, back it up. That's just, that's how it is. So that's what justifies him saying uh, people on the other side of this, they're just racist. They, they believe that WASP uh, reality is just the norm and you just need to deal with it. And if you don't fit into the WASP category, your voice is excluded. That's, that's just categorically wrong. There's there's no way that that's true, um, and you're going to see it. You are already seeing it in the global Methodist church, that, that the WASP mentality has not been adopted. Uh, there There is no serious Christian nationalism movement within Methodism. It's just, it's a specter. It's a bogeyman. It's not real. But he's going to try and make it very real so that you can maintain your racial animus um, if you saw my interview with Odell Horn, you know, he does explain why it is that so many black churches have not uh, jumped out yet. His main explanation is black people are generally not early adopters. He says that's a cultural distinction uh, between uh, black America and white America. White, white people, for one reason or another, are just more eager uh, to uh, adopt new trends than, than black people, at least when you're talking about the church. I would be interested to to see any kind of study on that, but that's one explanation. Another one would be because you have race-baiting bishops that tell you that these white people who are leaving over here want nothing to do with you when the opposite is the case.
Although it is a minority movement, it is a very vocal and active and occasionally found in evangelical conservative United Methodist churches. Like a prairie fire, its tentacles infect many congregations who are gullible to its message. Alongside similar secular nationalistic organizations, white communities are subject to the messages of hate and rejection shrouded in conserving traditional values. That's in scare quotes, by the way, conserving traditional values. He's saying they don't really mean that. Whether in public schools, libraries, sports events, community organizations, and of course, the church. So he's he's implying that not only are there bigots, but they're they're dishonest about their bigotry, saying it's about values. It's not about values. It's about uh, racism. That's all he's saying. He also, I I, I want to come back to the previous paragraph. He talks about African Americans, ethnic minorities, immigrants, women, and the especially the LGBTQ community. So he's lumping in. So people like me would agree, yeah, there shouldn't be any kind of distinction between ethnic heritage. Everybody has an equal place in the household of God, but the common denominator there is, do they want to repent of their sins and flee from the wrath to come? That's what uh, gives anyone membership in the church uh, under the lordship of Christ Jesus. But whenever you say the LGBTQ community, you're talking about people who self-identify with uh, sexual rebelliousness against God's word. So I would just say one of these things is not like the other. We disagree on a, on a fundamental uh, understanding of how identity works. I, I would say that there are inalienable characteristics about all the people, uh, but that separates from the LGBTQ community, which tries to make sexual orientation or self-expression inalienable when um, that is a faulty understanding of identity. All right, so the source of all evil is money-slash-systemic racism, I told you. Some historians have suggested that this WASP exclusiveness began in 1621 with the first recorded history of slavery in America. While this date is debatable, there is no doubt that maintaining the existence of slavery and free labor required extreme measures of propaganda based on a new theology and medical malfeasance to produce a worldview that supported the inhumane treatment of other human beings. The ultimate form of this was eugenics, a biological slash philosophy undergirding white supremacy over all other ethnic groups. Eugenics attempted to prove this theory with so-called medical research. This method became rampant in the mid-1800s at the crest of the enslavement of Africans and past the Civil War. This philosophy was years later seized upon by Adolf Hitler and others. Alongside this movement were theological underpinnings of racial superiority. There are two huge um, presuppositions in this that are not helpful. One is that slavery was the unique invention or problem of America. It's not. It's as old as human civilization found around the world. Our civilization was the first to end it. It's still continuing in many parts of the world. Um, there's only one uh, side of this political culture war that wants to deny the reality of slavery today, and it's the left, whether you're talking about the left not wanting to talk about the Sound of Freedom movie that came out that highlights sex slavery of children, whether you're wanting to talk about the corporate left that continues to uh, take down trade barriers with corp international corporations that practice slave labor, whether you talk about the left that's talking about that that wants open borders to continue practicing the hiring of people from Mexico and other countries for substandard wages and uh, to destroy the border on 
the south of America where uh, there's a huge sex slave trade going on. Um, when you talk about eugenics here, it was the left that uh, trumpeted eugenics. Almost all of the, the people who spoke openly of eugenics in North America associated with the political left of that day. They associated with an ideology called social Darwinism, which was uh, uh, heralded on the left as the answer to the future's problems, okay? These, these are things, this is, this is um, the iron law of woke projection, where you take your own sins and you put them on your enemy. It's cultural leftism that's responsible for justifying slavery today uh, and the, the institutions and parties that, that are guilty of it, and it's the cultural left that was guilty of eugenics, social Darwinism, and its modern-day expression of globalism. And I, I could probably do 20 different videos on that. I'm not going to, but he is blaming people like me for things that actually the cultural left is responsible for. Following the horrific U.S. Civil War, it was said that, quote, the North may have won the war, but the South won the peace. While many in the North were tired and depressed by all the consequences of violence and death, the South systematically worked to create a new narrative to justify what they termed, quote, the lost cause. The foundation of their cause had already been established by the theologians and quasi-doctors during slavery. Their scholars rewrote American history books, painting the plantations as peaceful, benevolent owners protecting the enslaved population, much like the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The Daughters of the Confederacy co-opted others to build monuments, rename roads, buildings, schools, and more to celebrate Southern generals and other Confederate leaders. So once again... He is just coming in with the sledgehammer where a hammer is required. I know a lot of conservative people. None of them want to justify slavery. Even those who, who herald, you talk about the lost cause and a, cultural, a culture of the South that was lost after the Civil War, even they have no interest generally in racial superiority or um, defending slavery. They can acknowledge that not all of it was uh, just worst-case scenario stuff, but even so, nobody wants to reconstruct that or justify that. They want to be able to acknowledge that history is complicated and that despite the biases that they had in the past, people in the past still were exemplars of heroism and nobility. So this, this modern tendency that we have to demonize everyone in the past because they were either complicit in or participating in unjust systems, unjust systems just is fictitious and um, uh, chronic, chronological centric. I don't know. It's 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 silly. Most of all, through the intimidation of formerly enslaved persons, whites created tenant farming, sharecropping, the Ku Klux Klan. If you didn't know, the Democratic Party uh, was synonymous with the Ku Klux Klan. Jim Crow, public lynchings, segregated facilities and a denigrating second-class citizenship of the formerly enslaved through publications, drama, newspapers, music by Stephen Foster, and others caricaturing African Americans, etc. The result was a brainwashing of many Americans in the South and North that subconsciously infected the psyche of many to justify the exclusion and inferiority of African Americans. Today we call it systemic racism. All this happened in spite of the passing of the 13th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution to assure equality of the formerly enslaved and the illegality of slavery. So someone like me would answer, the only thing that is uh, perpetrating cultural stereotypes about black inferiority at this point are race-baiting leaders. 
who continually uh, hold this narrative up as something uh, worth consideration. I would say it's laughable and, and it belongs in the past. What he would say is that these things in the past continue to impact the present. Part of the reality is, yeah, every the past influences everything in the present. All, all of the past influences all of the present, which influences all of the future. But that's not to say that things that happened in the past are equally influential or more powerfully influential than, say, socioeconomic uh, conditions. So I would say that the, um, the, the propaganda, yes, there was propaganda back then. I would say that there's propaganda now that perpetuates racial stereotypes and friction, and I would say that that's what he's doing now. If, if we didn't have this kind of stuff, I actually believe that we would have a colorblind society where cultural... Um, and, and ethnic boundaries would blend together much more easily, and that, uh, that this is all something that, that Stith and others are electing to do. They want to continue to have this divide-and-conquer strategy towards people groups. Um, just in case I need to say it, I fully acknowledge that racism is a reality, not just past, in the past, but in the present. I just agree with black thinkers like Larry Elder that uh, racism is not a significant driver in the success of individuals or groups at this point in American history. Um, I, it's not for a white guy to make that case, so yeah, I'd point towards Larry Elder, Glenn Lowry, um, John McWhorter, uh, Shelby Steele. Those are four that I can list off the top of my head that, that think that this is a tired trope that's doing more harm, more harm than good right now. It also infantilizes black people to imagine that they are uniquely fragile and unable to be healed of past traumas. Because when you read some history, you, you come to understand that other people groups have gone through bad things too. Um, and then that, that tendency we have to get into the oppression Olympics, well, not as bad as so did that. There, there are people groups still going through heinous treatment today that a generation down the line will be doing just fine because they're not fed this line about perpetual grievance. Black people in America today could be doing better if this was not the bread and butter of so many left-leaning leaders. That's, that's what I want. I want for black people to do well. I want to share in a church with them and a movement with them that's fully my intention in the Global Methodist Church to have a genuine connection with people of other ages, nations, and races, which is the promise of the church. Uh, United Methodist Church is not going to provide that. They're going to continue to provide for racial animus and resentment. Paradigm for dominance. White supremacy became the unwritten guidepost of America, which set, up a which set a paradigm for the relationship of the WASP community with any group that was either self-excluded or mandatorily excluded. This unwritten rule centered around power. An example of the struggle for power over others is a story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Manifest... Manifest destiny is the fruition of a people who see their divine calling as wasps to dominate the entire continent from sea to shining sea. In the path of this ideology was the assumption that people of color were expendable. Mexicans and Native Americans were systematically killed, dehumanized, subjugated, and marginalized, and still are. Similarly, <laughs> to act as though there's uh, today, there, all these things are the same as during the days of manifest destiny is laughable. You're just silly. Similarly, during the Great Migration Movement in the late 19th and 20th centuries, early 20th century, there was a discrimination 
there was discrimination and acts of prejudice against Southern Europeans, Catholics, and Jews, unless they assimilated into a melting pot of whiteness. Minorities were accepted as long as they did not accrue financial assets, be elected to public office, or hold any position of power over the white community. Minorities were okay as long as they were subservient, entertainers, servants, supporting, and marginalized. So Jacob and Esau, first off, is a story primarily about jealousy and envy. Uh, it's not to say there's nothing in the Bible about power over others, but that's just shoehorning in. Uh, something. He's, he's trying to create a veneer of some kind of scripture here. Um, a lot of this is just, when you read world history, this is par for the course. This is humans in the majority and how they always behave towards a minority until demographics shift. Um, that It's happening around the world today. Heck, I've got friends in Nigeria who regularly describe tribal um, tensions and maneuverings. Um, so this is not something that is unique to America, nor unique to this point in time. We just don't know our history, so we imagine that there's something exceptional about this. There really isn't, and there's nothing that says that that has to impact how things are today. So I've already talked enough about this. The formula for justifying this domination was and is simple, and it continues to be the mantra for many Americans. I, I just think that's silly. One, identify and magnify physical differences such as color, facial structure, religious practices, etc., because differences can be used to equate superiority and inferiority. The only people I see doing that are people on the left. I don't know anybody on the right that magnifies physical differences, color, facial structure, religious practices. Uh, that's, I mean, heck, one of the, the biggest people running for... You got Tim Scott, a black guy running for president. You got Vivek Ramaswamy, I think he's Indian or Pakistani, I forget which, running for president. These are Republicans, all right? Uh, find, hey, just in case I need to say it, I'm not a Republican. I'm not a registered voter. I'm not affiliated with any worldly party. I just look at worldly ideologies and where they live, okay? I'm a, I would like to think I'm a dispassionate observer, uh, but whenever I read stuff like this, it makes me align harshly against the left because I know these are things they say behind closed doors that just don't get scrutinized even though they're laughable. All right, so second way they justify it. Find selected biblical texts to indicate the inferiority of a group, which is easy since the biblical perspective is often written by a patriarchal system and God's chosen people are ethnic Semitic Jews. Note, Jesus is never quoted as justifying domination over others. So I, I'm going to leave that, that second part to somebody else, but I don't know anybody who's looking at biblical texts to indicate inferiority of a group. That's just a racial stereotype of a white guy from 100 years ago, or 50 years ago. It says, the biblical perspective is often written by patriarchal... Why are you following the Bible if you think it was written by patriarchal bigots? You know, he's one of these that thinks that he's got the three buckets like Adam Hamilton. You got the stuff that's eternally true, stuff that was true for its moment, the stuff that was never true. He thinks that he can navigate these buckets and know what's eternally true in God's Word and what's not. Reality is that the Bible was written by people uh, under the possession and power of the Holy Spirit to perfectly write out God's words, Word, for us. And so... Uh, if you think that that reflects, I mean, it may or may not reflect patriarchal values. Our God is a patriarch. We follow the Hebrew patriarchs. Patriarchy is not de facto evil. Do not call evil what God has called good. I'm not saying all patriarchy is good, but I'm saying the patriarchy of 
of God is good. The patriarchy that the Bible normalizes is good. And whenever you try to divorce the Bible from it, uh, you, you cut its legs out from under it. Three, being chosen carries privileges and some benevolent responsibilities while dominating others. So if that's to say that um, nobody can have any power over anybody else, which I think is what he's saying, then he is an anarchist communist, I think, anarcho-communist. I don't think he really is. I think he's just trying to um, put the uh, status quo on the defense. Status quo, of course, being there are differences between individual people that create differentials in merit, which uh, result in real-world consequences, which is an inevitability of life. Every time we try and undo that, mass death follows. So uh, wisdom lies in understanding that some people are different from others. I'm not talking social Darwinism, where there's differences in people groups. I'm talking about on an individual basis. There are individual differences between people, and uh, uh, hierarchies come out of that. And so anyone who's objecting on a fundamental level as he is to a hierarchy is silly. I mean, he has a hierarchical position as a bishop who has authority over others. I think in order to even have that position, you have to agree some people have authority and power over others, and the challenge then is to use that benevolently and well, not to dominate others. This legalized inequality set the paradigm for today's white supremacy and all other exclusions of any human being. So he's just got this, this universalistic religion he's following. It's not Christianity, where no one is ever excluded for anything, even though Jesus clearly talks about exclusions, not just in the afterlife, but excluding people from the church when they are unrepentant in sin. Um, there's, there's discernment uh, that is required throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. He wants to throw all that out in the name of inclusivity which is his prerogative as an American, but you can't do that and call yourself a Christian because Christianity, our biblical text, justifies um, people having authority over others, there being differences between us, and excluding people who are not on board with the covenant community. So he just seems so indoctrinated in this new, wokest, far-left um, ideology that he doesn't see how ridiculous this ideology he's promoting is. Spiritual remnant. Fourth, all denominations struggle with the discrepancy between the unwritten rule of selected dominance and the Bible, which states clearly that we are called to love our neighbor. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 states, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The rest of the story is the definition of a neighbor anyone in need. All right, so how, I think he's focusing on neighbor. The unique story of the United Methodist Church is a story of over 200 years of wrestling like Jacob with our identity under the call of God, maintaining a theology of inclusiveness. So he's saying this new inclusive religion is the story of Methodism, which I would heartily disagree with. And it's not that I want to exclude people groups from the church. I just want to exclude people who are unrepentantly living in sin. From the church. That's it. Yet, conversely, being in sync with cultural norms in our community and society, while Wesley was clear in his radical, uh, vile attitude of welcoming all God's children, that's not what John Wesley did. He excluded people all the time. He would come into town and he would excommunicate, well, not ex he would kick out 
uh, a quarter of the people in the, the, the Methodist society. That's just a silly thing to say. Uh, as the church developed, it often inhaled the fumes of its society, resulting in splinters, reorganizations, resolutions, and revivals. So he's presenting a false myth here, where in the beginning Methodism was so inclusive it just took everybody in. Uh, no, it was a very exclusive society. You couldn't even get into their meetings without a card that had John Wesley's sign-off on it, okay? To say that it was an inclusive society is... Um, it's just wrong. I don't know. It's It's... I've said the word silly a lot today. I, 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 the long and short of it is, I don't think the bishop here, Stith, should be taken seriously. I think that he's regurgitating half-truths, uh, myths that have proven to be wrong, race-baiting, cultural stereotypes, and bigotry. The dramatic split of North and South in 1844 was not as simple as the North against slavery and the South for slavery. I appreciate that he can acknowledge some complexity somewhere. In both churches, there was a mix of opinions. In the South, there were church people of goodwill who taught their slaves to read or spoke up against slavery under punishment of death. In the North, there were church buildings turned into safe houses of stations of the Underground Railroad. The abolition movement included many people, church people, including Methodists. There were preachers North and South who inhaled the gospel of white supremacy. Remember, eugenics had its birth at Boston University. Okay, so he acknowledges that came from liberalism. While the votes for or against full inclusiveness seemed clearly Southern-driven, there was always a remnant in the South believing in the good news of inclusiveness. So what's the good news? Is it Jesus Christ? No, it's universal inclusion. That's a different, he's, he's, it's a bait and switch. He's, he's, <laughs> you thought you were coming for Jesus. No, you're getting inclusivity. Uh, some might say, well, Jesus included others. Yes, he, he included people of all ages, nations, and races who wish to repent of their sin and live in faithful covenant with God. That's it. That's, that's the whole of the good news. There, Jesus died for you, but then there's an answer that's expected, and if you don't want to answer, if you want to come to the wedding but not be in your wedding clothes, if you don't know what I'm talking about, read your Bible, then you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you will deserve it because our God is just, and you refused him. Following the reunion of Northern and Southern Methodism in 1939, the demonic central jurisdiction was created as a sacrificial lamb. At each quadrennial session that followed, there were resolutions seeking its reversal. As early as 1954, an amendment to the Constitution was passed that allowed conferences of the central jurisdiction to merge with other conferences. As far back as the period of American Reconstruction, Methodist women's organizations were active in fighting against segregation and discrimination. The first formally organized women's society was formed to provide relief, welfare, education, and help for post-enslaved African Americans. Women were the phalanx of Methodist social action. I think what he's trying to do here is unite the minority aggrieved groups against the white man and to say, hey, we've always had alliances along the way against the patriarchy of the white man. He doesn't say that outright, but I, I think that's kind of the ideology uh, behind this. Uh, the central jurisdiction was a jurisdiction that was just all the black United Methodist Church. Well, it was before the United Methodist Church. It was in the uh, the Methodist Church, uh, the preceding denomination, um, before they came back t together in 1968. Um, so he's saying that that separate but equal thing was racist. I would agree. I would also acknowledge that there were several United Methodists within the central jurisdiction. Um, 
who, who thought it was great to be in connection with black people around the country. So that's not to say it should have maintained, but that's to say this is where things get messy, where you have affinity groups that group together and there's a difference between them. So that's something that I would actually say should be kept in mind as we're looking at the Christmas covenant legislation being brought to general conference next year, which is going to try and create a separate but equal status between North American United Methodism and African United Methodism. I would say you can't have separate but equal. You have to be together. There were, however, struggles over the role of women in ministry. The struggle officially ended at the 1956 General Conference, which voted to allow women to be ordained and to lead at every level of the church. I can remember while attending Drew Seminary from 1955 to 1958, there were a total of five talented women enrolled, none of whom were pursuing divinity degrees for pastoral ministry because they knew they would be excluded. So yeah, he is doing this. There's the white man and him oppressing these different people groups. We should be united in overturning the uh, ethos and norms and status quo of the white man. The war stories are rampant of exclusion. So at this point, exclusion is, is just evil. It's of the evil one of ethnic minorities, Native Americans, Hispanic, Asian Americans, and indigenous people around the world in our mission endeavors. Yeah, that's why we went to them was to exclude them. That's why we tried to baptize them and give them doctrine that gives life. It's so that we could exclude them. Yeah, that makes sense. During World War II, when Japanese-American citizens were rounded up like cattle and put in concentration camps, while white German-Americans were never harmed, it was Methodist missionaries who went to the camps and served the people and taught their children. There has always been the commandment of Jesus to love thy neighbor. The current remnant may well be the new United Methodist Church. Yes, these bones can live. So now you're getting the sense that, okay, you have the forces of exclusion, Satan, and these people that just have, are full of hate, they finally left the United Methodist Church. There is a faithful remnant left, and God is going to bless them in this new religion of inclusivity. Fifth, we are a diverse denomination. I maintain that the Council of Bishops of the United Methodist Church is the most diverse body in American Christendom in terms of race, gender, age, and nationality. I think he would be wrong. I think it's heavily white, upper-middle class, mainline. One of my Episcopal friends suggests that, quote, the jurisdiction was born in iniquity but has been the source of our diverse elections of bishops, end quote. One can wonder how much of a difference is there between the stated policies for the inclusiveness of the denomination and the rank-and-file members. To assume that the social principles and concomitant policies of inclusiveness represent all congregations and congregants would be naive. The basic decisions of the general church are the result of meetings, learnings, fellowshipping, and decisions of the general conference, which the average United Methodist is not privy to. These leaders, however, are often aware of the perspectives of the constituency, which often leads to cautious approaches to social issues. I think all that was just to say folks in the, the pews are more bigoted than the people making decisions for the United Methodist Church. I would say that they're more salt of the earth, more grassroots, more traditionally minded. Yeah. The current debate over the LGBTQ inclusion is an example of this creative tension. Oh, it's a creative tension. It's not leftists seizing the, the gears of control and influence and strong-arming the rest of the body into conformity with their values. No, it's just a creative tension. The original ban on homosexuality is an example of this ambivalence. Oh, it was uh, uh, ambivalence in the beginning, not, not uh, a clear stance. It was first raised in 1972 amidst a conference 
Preoccupied with the new church organization and the inclusion of ethnic minorities and women, very little to no discussion about human sexuality occurred before the vote. Over the next 60 years and debates over the issue, the votes have been very close, while the numbers of delegates favoring exclusion were enhanced by the amazing growth of the church in Africa. These African representatives were affected by two factors. First, most missionaries to Africa from the West tended to be conservative evangelicals. Yeah, because they think that life and death are at stake here, and they loved their neighbor and went to them. Yeah. Um, Secondly, many of the African governments determined that homosexuality was a propitious scapegoat to hide their own inadequacies and thus passed laws against it. Okay, so they're against homosexuality because they knew they were inferiority, and so they projected it onto others pretty much. I think that's what he's saying. They, they knew they were inadequate, so you know, might as well put someone lower than us on the totem pole so we can we need a whipping boy too, so it can be American gay people. This was reflected in the last general conference in 2016 when the Good News Movement found an ally with many African delegates to barely defeat a more moderate position. The suspicion was that this balance of power would shift due to American annual conferences prioritizing a change in the discipline. This led to the proposed protocol on reconciliation and grace through separation and the subsequent creation of the global Methodist church. Yeah, because it's the same people who... (laughs) who were behind both. Uh, Bishop Easterling signed the Protocol on Reconciliation and Grace. Uh, She is not with the Global Methodist Church. So these one was aimed at reconciliation when it became clear that left-leaning leaders were not interested in that. Some left so that they wouldn't be under your thumb anymore or the, the thumb of people like you. Secondly, when you look at the votes on uh, rising um, changes or a change in sexual ethics, he says that they were so close. When, when you look at the margins, we had a clear majority each time. You can say it was close. You'd find there was a, a sizable minority. But if we had those kind of margins on the federal government level, the legislative level, there would be much more unity in government. Uh, the, the difference would be United Methodists, we just didn't comply with the clear rule of the majority. The minority just simply would not um, honor the will of the body. What are some subliminal factors affecting disaffiliation? Sixth, he says, I suspect some disaffiliations are a backlash to policies and emphases over the years and generations, which forced some to swallow ideas against their preferences. They can now visibly reject issues such as enhanced racial relations, enhanced racial relations, women in leadership, and a number of social justice issues. So yeah, these people are just uh, right-leaning bigots. They've had uh, this stuff shoved down their throats, and now they're just upset, and they want to leave. I would largely agree with that. I would just say um, I, I would say that their, their presuppositions whenever it comes to race and sex and social justice issues are very different. We just don't think power works the way you think it works. We don't think human groups work the way you think they do. And if you'd read some um, history, even just American history, going back to the 1960s, a lot of the stuff that we're doing now as a denomination has already been tried and it's failed. And I think people like um, the leaders in the United Methodist Church know that. I think that they're intentionally trying to manipulate um, people in the denomination who are not historically informed. The joy and the pain of inclusiveness. While we have much to celebrate in our efforts towards inclusiveness, this is his God. 
inclusiveness. It has not come without some pain, stress, and loss of morale. A major result of the union of three denominations into the United Methodist Church was the insistence of the former EUB denomination that the central jurisdiction and segregation be abolished. Subsequently, the new church emphasized diversity and inclusiveness. That emphasis has continued from local churches to boards, agencies, the Council of Bishops, annual conferences, schools, institutions, etc. Much of the resulting inclusiveness was done without edicts or legislation, but by the commitment of loyal United Methodists to, quote, do what is right. So he takes something that was good in a limited capacity when dealing with inalienable characteristics, and he creates a universality out of it or a, a, a universal maxim out of it where um, everybody would agree that in certain limited situations, yes, the, the, the borders needed to be pushed back, but to imagine that he can then apply it to a universal uh, that's that's a slippery slope fallacy, I think. I don't know. It's it, I would disagree. During the 2022 jurisdictional conferences of the 13 new U.S. bishops elected, seven were women and eight were people of color. The first ever black female bishop was elected to the South Central jurisdiction of the first, and the first Native American bishop was also elected. With the election of seven women bishops in 2022, 44% of the Council of Bishops are women. From the perspective of Christ's beloved community, the church has much to celebrate. From other perspectives, the celebration is muted. The ethnic minority churches often continue to struggle because of the, the society itself is still filled with inequality and injustice. Are you talking about the Korean churches that are trying to disaffiliate in uh, Greater New Jersey and CalPAC annual conferences that are not being allowed to disaffiliate and are being disregarded by the bishops there, I kind of don't think that's what he's talking about. While representation at the top is visible, local minority churches struggle as they must serve their constituents with limited resources and systemic roadblocks. Many pastors serve with minimum salaries and support benefits. It is difficult to recruit and sustain the brightest and best clergy in such circumstances. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the challenge. It's not racial, I don't think. In reference to my home conference, the Baltimore-Washington Conference, since 1968, no white male clergy person has been elected as bishop. Three African-American males were elected, Edward Carroll, Forrest Stith, Marcus Matthews. Two white women, Susan Morrison and Peggy Johnson, were elected at that time frame. There have been many talented white men, district superintendents, college presidents, heads of general agencies, leaders of general and jurisdictional entities, and pastors of large churches. Many have offered themselves to serve as Episcopal leaders, but none successfully. So I would say the, the things he's listing up, lifting up as good are actually still part of this racialized lens that is not helpful, namely that people with black bodies are representative of black people generally. And I think that that's a fundamentally flawed position. I think as he is showing is, see, I don't think his, his understanding of Christianity is representative of black Christianity generally. I think black Christians are much more biblically oriented than him, much more conservatively and traditionally oriented than him. But because he has a black body, he is speaking for all black people or the black caucus interest. I would say the same with Bishop Easterling. There are ways in which clearly they are, are, are culturally black, and you know I'm not going to suss out where someone's black or white, but I am going to say that it is a uh, um, fundamentally flawed presupposition to look at individuals as automatic representatives of their larger people groups. So to look at the United Methodist Church and say, this is how many black people, we, black bodies we have occupying the office of bishop, 
that makes a statement on where we are with black people, I think is fundamentally flawed. You can still be culturally very hostile to black cultural norms and yet be happy to lift up those persons with black bodies that will not challenge those norms. So I think that's what's happened in the United Methodist Church is there is an ascendant far left ideology that will be glad to lift up people of any uh, racial group so long as they're invested in critical race theory, racialization, and far left redistributionism. All right, well, my wife just called and I just scrolled down. There's still a ton left to cover, but I, I hope what's come through, you know, I, I anticipate I've, I've dealt with most of this. You, you figure out for yourself how representative you think he is of black Christianity more generally. If you don't know a black Christian, well, go find one, and they can't represent everybody to you, but you might get a different opinion. Who knows? I, I think Bishop Stith intentionally wrote this to exacerbate racial tensions in his annual conference. I would not be surprised at all if there are a lot of black churches in the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference who have no interest in continuing forward with the United Methodist Church, and if they can re-racialize this problem or racialize it to begin with, then they can maybe keep people in the fold a bit easier for longer. I don't know for a fact that he sees it that way. I think he probably does genuinely believe what he puts forward here in a number of ways. I just think it's a, a very unself-aware unhistorically informed and um, very uh, ideologically charged view of um, recent American history, human nature, and I think it will lead to a lot more suffering rather than reconciliation. So um, I, I don't know. I, I pray for the folks in Baltimore, Washington. I think it's got to be really rough knowing that there are people in leadership who see you this way, and they've just made a whole line of questioning and talking out of bounds for reasonable, conscientious people. I, I think we're at a point in history where to be reasonable means that you have to be willing to say objectionable things. Um, I hope I haven't been any more objectionable than I have to be, but I, I think we've reached a point where if we continue forward with beliefs like this, then it's just going nowhere good, so we have to just roundly rebuke it. Anyway, I got to go home. I got to put my kids to bed. I'll, I'll see you guys later.